Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. The freedom of the church to carry out her work is often seen to be standing in opposition to the freedom of individuals to act on their sexual desires. So many of the religious liberty issues that we deal with here at the conference have to do with this perception. Our institutions, such as schools and social service providers, were affirming one thing about sex and marriage while the broader culture often affirms something else, and then that opposition puts this pressure on Catholic institutions. So we at the USCCB were constantly talking about how we can both better communicate the church's vision while at the same time claiming a right to religious liberty. In other words, we don't just want to be defensive, we also want to bear witness to a positive vision. And today we're going to talk about a recently published book that aims to help Catholics both defend religious liberty and explain how our institutions and communities foster authentic love, freedom, and happiness. I think this is a very helpful resource. I'm so glad that it's out there. This book is Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution, A Catholic Guide by Helen Alvare. Helen Alvare is Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the Robert A. Levy Endowed Chair in Law and Liberty at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, where she teaches family law, law and religion, and property law. But Professor Alvare has also served the church in numerous ways, um, especially in these areas of communications, um, and really, in a way, I would say evangelization. I mean, this is a way of reaching out to the broader culture. So it's really a pleasure to be able to talk about this fantastic book. Professor Alvare, thank you so much for talking with us. I'm grateful that you're having me. Thank you. First of all, let's just start with that title. Um, as you know, there is going to be a segment of Catholics that looks at the title of your book, and right away they're going to say, why are you so concerned with pelvic issues? Um, and again, they're going to say, ah, aha, religious liberty, really, it's just a cover for culture warring. It's not really about religious liberty. This is just an underhanded way to get to get back at the at the sexual revolution. Um, So there's kind of two questions in there, and we'll just start with the first one. How does the sexual revolution pose a threat to religious liberty? So the first answer to that is quite practical. Many, many, maybe the largest majority of lawsuits brought against not only Catholic, but, but other Christian institutions as well, are based on our fidelity to sort of classic Catholic positions on sex, marriage, and parenting. So, you know, it used to be that the law, state and federal, legislation, regulation, court decisions, found Catholic positions harmonious, good for the public, healthy for for men, women, and children. Recently, that position has changed. And the government keeps initiating all these laws, all these regulations, all these court decisions that command adherence to to beliefs and actions about sex, marriage, and parenting that contradict ours. And then they, they attempt to force us to cooperate with certain behavior And when we say no, we end up in lawsuits. (laughs) So the short answer is the government's obsession with these issues 
and desire to force religious institutions to heal on this, and heal, I mean, H-E-E-L, is, um, is causing us to have to think about these issues more. Can I ask a follow-up, Helen? I mean, this is, I mean, when you say government, do you mean, do you mean at all levels of the government? You mean federal? state local i mean because you see this playing out and like you know where i live where you know in leesburg and and you know parents rising up against the the, the sex education program in in they're being forced to that they don't like in the public schools and trying to you know so i mean could you just talk a little bit more about like when you sure. say government who do you mean that's a great question um so i do mean all levels of government from and I do mean all branches. So I mean federal, state, and local. And I also mean executive, which remember also governs all the agencies, Health and Human Services, the Labor Department, Homeland Security, Department of Justice. And I also mean the judiciary. And I mean that at the federal level and the state level, and then local government, school boards, et cetera. But this said, weirdly, in just recent years, the political parties have become divided on this. So sometimes it depends on which party is in power. Sometimes it doesn't so much if you've got a state or a locale that may feature, you know, as usual, conflicting political parties, but the populace is generally agreed on some of these basic issues about family life. So it really depends uh, on the state in which you live. It can be the local school board that governs you. And it's definitely flip-flops back and forth depending on which administration is in charge in Washington and has the upper hand in the legislative chambers. Well, one one thing I can see as as um, kind of a rejoinder to what you just said, and it's kind of also the second question sort of buried in there and the, about the title is, I mean, do sexual ethics, why do they even matter that much? Okay, so the government's mm -hmm. trying to tell you you need to do these things, but Aren't, isn't the government just wanting us to be more tolerant? And aren't we already supposed to just love everybody anyway? Like, why, why do, why does our teaching about sexual ethics, why is, why does that matter so much to Catholic institutions? I'm glad you've saved the hardest questions for the first two. It's going to be coasting here on out. <laughs> I want to get right to the heart of the matter. Yeah, well, yeah. no, I think Dive I'd right in. Because you're you're asking, I think, the question most people will ask if they're not already sympathetic to the project. Um, so I'd give two categories of answers to that. The first is personal. The second is, is societal or communal. At the personal level, it matters a great deal <laughs> to the individual's that are given to you in your life, right? Your spouse, your kids, your parents, your siblings, your grandparents, your cousins, the choices that people make in the sex, marriage and parenting arenas. If you have sex with a bunch of people and then you sort of leave them all hanging, never a text, not a call back, people are wounded in a very deep place. It's the same reason the Me Too movement understands that sexual violations are the harshest, even consensual sex. It touches people at a very deep level, okay? So it matters there. It matters whether when you have sex, you conceive a child with the father in the picture or not. I, I was talking to somebody yesterday at a retail shop 
And she said to me something about trying to find a school for her child, a preschool. And she rolled her eyes and she goes, oh, for God's sake, the father wants to be in the picture. And I was oh. like, oh, it oh. so sad. <clears throat> you know, it was a very brief relationship. The tension between them, the lack of the child's contact with the dad, except from time to time. Um, it matters to a child whether the child has the attention of both parents or not. It matters to the child whether he or she gets to be born or is terminated. <clears throat> it matters to um, the individual whether someone is loyal to them or leaves them after sex or leaves them after a marital commitment. It matters to people whether they cohabit or they actually commit and marry to enter into that kind of a relationship with somebody. <clears throat> it matters deeply psychologically it matters deeply emotionally, spiritually, mentally, intellectually, whether you can function and you're happy. I think that people have this idea that being nice to people and taking care of people on the border or on death row <clears throat> is real social justice. But I say in the book that, frankly, most of us do not have these blessed opportunities to, to take care of, of the desperate on the border or the desperate on death row. Frankly, realistically, we have to face the fact that the people that we will affect most deeply for the longest time and indelibly, think of the 40-year-old adoptee thinking, I wonder why my parents placed me. I love my adoptive parents, but I, I'd like to know more about my situation. I mean, the people you're going to affect mostly for the longest time are the people given to you in sex marriage and parenting relationships. It's so, uh, you know, idealistic and, and romantic, but not realistic to think that social justice is only done in these other ways and not in your own home. Second, more briefly, in a communitarian way, we know that children fare best, and this is agreed on the right and on the left. They're just, the evidence is just too strong when they are taken care of by the people who brought them into this world in a steady, loving, no drama kind of way. And that children suffer the most when they are not known and loved by the people who brought them into this world. We also know that adults suffer terribly. We know that the single greatest factor in the gap between the rich and the poor in the United States today is family structure being born and raised into a situation where your parents are there to take care of you in a stable, long-term way. So we also know that the roots of so much communal chaos um, are in the absence of dads and, and sort of a, a steady, again, no drama, ordinary parents taking care of business kind of neighborhood. And again, this is not a religious thing or a right-wing thing. Raj Chetty, perhaps the most famous economist at Harvard who deals with these questions, he is considered sort of the guru of social mobility studies and economics, will tell you the same thing I'm telling you here. So it matters for the individual to actually take care of the people given to them in a true Good Samaritan social justice kind of way. And it matters a great deal to the health of the poor, to the health of minority communities, to the, help of, to, the, to the health of immigrant communities, 
that they have what I think is civil rights access to a stable family life that will provide the basis for, you know, what we all think of as, as sort of the bread and butter of the American dream. Well, and so like, so convincing and so true. I agree 100%, but I'm actually increasingly, so I confess to watching some like bad television, just bad television, right? So what I actually see is like, I, I'm thinking back in terms of like, you know, programming from like television program from like 20 years ago, where you started to see the introduction of same-sex relationships and that increasingly being introduced. And now I see it more and more and more and more. What I'm now seeing is actually the opposite of what you just described, which is women in their thirties adopting embryos saying, I don't need a father. I don't need a man to raise this child. Uh, so the kind of the opposite. So what my question is like, the culture, the culture is leading in a different way and usually is sometimes 5, 10, 15 years ahead of what we see in laws or, um, you know, got different government trying to kind of enforce, restrict religious liberty in these areas, right? Of, so could you maybe speak to, I don't know if you go into that in the book at all, could, but could you maybe speak to, to, to that a little bit? Like, like while, the, while the empirical evidence, the studies you're saying on the right and the left do, um, might agree, right, in a mother and a father raising the child that's best for the family, culture isn't saying that right now. Yeah, no, that's uh, another great question here, sort of where the rubber hits the road. Um, couple of things. I actually deal with sort of signs of hope in this more in my prior book, 2017-18, called Putting Children's Interests First in U.S. Law and Policy, With Power Comes Responsibility. Because what I've just described to you as an ethic that works and that matters to everybody, in, including Catholic institutions, is, is an ethic of putting children at the front door versus adults. Oh, the adults make all their decisions at the front door. And oops, when the children are in trouble, we can't, we come up with all these government policies and all of these social programs and <clears throat> everything. And we try to take care of them at the back door, right? Child support, after school programs, preschool programs, Head Start, jobs programs, emotional counseling programs. Because what? We put the adults at the front door. That book deals a little bit more with some signs of hope that I see. And I do see some signs of hope which are the country waking up to the fact that the largest gap between the rich and the poor has to do with family life. To a lot of women in, you know, who have perennially been the, the lone parent, women are in the United States of all lone parent households, women are always like 85%, men are, you know, 14, 15% max. We're really trying to say love is enough or maybe more money is enough. And you can't fault people for wanting to, to, to fill a child's life with love and be enough, right? They, they mean to be heroic. They mean to be everything the child needs. But as they always say, nature bats last, right? And you just can't overcome the complementarity of the sexes, what a second person means, the fact that it's not just what a father gives the child, what a mother gives the child, it's what the mother gives the, the, the father and the father gives the mother and therefore enables each of them to give the child something new and different. I mean, how many parents would say, even sort of laughingly, 
well, you know, I had a little postpartum depression. And when I was standing at the top of the basement steps holding the baby, my husband went, oh, honey, maybe I should hold the baby now. <laughs> kind of because you're a little freaked out and you need some help. It's you, you can't overcome the way that whether you call it nature or the creator God <clears throat> made us. And there is evidence of this empirical evidence that's raining down from the social sciences on this. The other side of the coin, though, Mary, is I, I do think that, um, you know, these troubles have been with us always. They're just more exacerbated now. Right. In the 1960s, five percent of kids were born outside of marriage. Now it's close to 40 percent. It is very hard to get that genie back in the bottle. And the fact is that people with money and education are raising their children according, for the most part, to sort of like the most successful norm. And the poorest folks and the people with the least education are suffering all these familial losses and the next generation suffers for it. So to me, I think the strongest case for it after the, the natural case and the empirical case is the civil rights case. Why shouldn't poor minority new immigrant Americans have access to all the blessings and advantages of a stabler family life? And frankly, I think that culture is just so complicit in harming these vulnerable folks and that it has to be the churches. And to some extent, when you can get the government to do something positive along with the negative stuff they do continually that says family doesn't matter. So churches are absolutely crucial in this, as are all kinds of sort of voluntary non-governmental organizations, parents groups. But the culture is, I will not underestimate the strength of it and, and the foolish idea that children's needs are far less than they really are. Well, we've kind of been leading off, and I think appropriately so, um, with kind of what is positive about the church's teaching on se sexual ethics and sexual responsibility. But the book is also about religious liberty. And I, it seems to me that it's kind of offering a little bit of a corrective to other ways of defending religious liberty. Um, I mean, you notice even now, like we've been talking about why the teaching, why what we have to say about Catholic teaching about um, family life is reasonable. Um, we're not starting off by just saying like, well, we have our rights to to run our, our institutions however we feel like it. So can you say, like, where do you think that defenses for religious liberty sometimes by not doing what we're doing, what you've been doing here, you know, where do you think that they can sometimes miss the mark? And, and right. what do you think we need to be doing instead? I'm, again, I'm glad you, you took this turn with your question. Um, I think that right now in people's minds, our religious liberty demands... <clears throat> are so closely associated with our sexual expression teachings that they rise or fall together. And I think the church is too defensive and has failed to say in every case where we make a statement about religious liberty, and by the way, the practice, service, operation, whatever it is that we're seeking to protect <clears throat> is so beautiful. And it's so good for the community in which our institution is living. And you're going to want this witness to be present. It's beautiful and you're going to want it. <laughs> what do I think they're doing instead now? 
Well, <clears throat> I think they are, and I'll make a couple big points and a couple small ones and you pursue whichever one you want. I think they're failing to help people understand that our schools, our healthcare delivery and our social services are not just like secular institutions. I think they're being, um, they're not making the connection between our sexual expression ethics and the running of a healthcare and educational, you know, social services institutions. People don't see those as related. And I think instead, and, and I can't blame them. I just want them to do better. What they're doing is checking off the legal boxes that they need to check off to get a case to proceed to make a legitimate religious freedom defense that a judge and a, uh, another party can understand. And so they say things like, oh, well, this is the authority of our church. We, we can't provide contraception. We're not allowed. The bishop won't let me. <laughs> the pope won't let me. The catechism won't let me. So I call that the, the bishop made me do it response. Number two, I think we are, um, we basically announce a rule Oh, we've always taught no birth control. We don't do abortion. That's the rule. And then the second thing, I, or the third thing I think we do is in order to satisfy this religious liberty defense that's available to us that says the government cannot force on us ministers, you know, people who are the leaders of our faith, the evangelizers, the religious, you know, the clerical leaders. We try and give these really thin accounts of when a particular employee of a Catholic institution is a minister. So we say things like, oh, the organist picks the music for the children's liturgy. See, they're, they're a minister. <laughs> and I just think the public is listening and going, really? Is, is that really your full account of the importance of that employee to the religious mission of your institution? You people are grasping at straws and it looks like you just want to be a law unto yourself and not even try to make a good defense. So those are sort of the outlines of what I think right now is not being done as well as it could. Well, I I mean, the, that the bishop made me do it one is has to be to me the one that drives me the craziest. And probably those <laughs> of us at the bishop's conference soon, we see a religious liberty case comes up with like a school and we read about it in the news for example and 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 we see that like who the spokesperson for the institution said does exactly like you said is like well we just can't do this right. it makes it sound like we, we would can. like to we wish we could it then sort right. of like we well we you've basically given the whole game away because i mean you're you're basically yes. saying like you, that we that we think that all this other stuff is good not yes. you know that and that mm. we're just we're just sort of hamstrung by our by our doctrine the stupid <laughs> rules yeah Those these stupid, stupid rules. rules i i have seen and you know sometimes again i want to give the institutions the benefit of the doubt because they are lovely and doing so much good in their communities but like i read some and i i do in the book the chapter about what the institutions are currently doing. You'll see the footnotes of this endless series of local news stories and quotations from schools and hospitals and social services responses to, you know, I'm sorry, we can't conform to your sexual expression. And it was like, we know that the people who want us to conform to the state's new sexual orthodoxy are only trying to be compassionate and good. We hate that this is causing controversy in our community. Or literally, the bishop won't let us have the holy sacrament of the Eucharist in our school if we don't do X. 
or I think it was Notre Dame University that after pursuing uh, a religious freedom case against the contraception mandate all the way to the Supreme Court, once they win, they basically say, okay, we're just going to offer it because we hate to keep this benefit from our employees. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, just just put a gun in my mouth right now. I've, I've had it, you know? Um, so I suggest that they really need to say and acknowledge, and this, this goes to Mary's point about what people are seeing when they see us culturally and saying, we understand we look pretty countercultural right now. But I mean, say, tell people, you know, acknowledge you all know what things look like. And then say, but it, in fact, both anecdotally, empirically, both individually and communally, what we are promoting here has beautiful results for the human person and human communities, particularly the most vulnerable people, children, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, abused women, the poor, new immigrants. And we would like to be able to be a, a witness, to continue to be a witness in this community to this beautiful thing. And our fight is a fight to be that, not against a person, and never against love, but always for real love, real freedom, real equality, real happiness. Say it, <laughs> say it. It's Be so explicit. it's so refreshing what you're saying, Helen, because it, it kind of reminds me of um, the the book out uh, from University of Mary. Um, Monsignor Shea was involved. With, I love with Monsignor Shea, <laughs> and it's it's so good. And he doesn't like to take credit for the book, you know. But it's like I think he, you know, he has a large part to the book success, but it reminds me of that book where it talks about, I think the, the subtitle is pastoral uh, strategies for a, a new age, something like that. But it, it were, I mean, it, the question of like, not just who we are as Catholics and as institutions, quote unquote, right. But whose are we, right? Like we're proposing. <laughs> oh, that's the, just beautiful. The true, the good and the beautiful, like we yes. are Christ and what we, I mean, it, we are offering the vision of like oh mary i just know, love that i'm so shoplifting that phrase who well, i shoplifted from someone else i don't know okay who, well who's are we right we're christ yes. and we should offer that to the world instead of being on the defensive like you're saying and it applies in so many different areas not just in the the area of re religious liberty yes in fact the one of the things i do in the book and i think aaron this will go to one of your likely questions is to say what models of church, when I say to people in this book, we are not just another secular service provider. Well, then what are we? Well, the first question, the first model I propose, and darn it, I wish I'd talked to you earlier because I would have called it, whose are we? Now I'm going to do that from now on, is that what we do is not, we have this list of 10 moral rules and we're just going to follow them here. The first model is, we are people responding to an invitation of love and salvation from Jesus Christ. And all these things that we believe and do are that response. And in fact, a huge part of the, the text on our sex, marriage, and parenting teachings, I wanted to know this for myself. So I assumed other people wanted to know it too. There's my ego in that. Like, how did this get started? How did a church that in the very first years after, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, both take care of the poorest of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the outcast, and come up at the exact same time with this shape of sex, marriage, and family 
norms that we have now. And so I go back and I say, how did this get started? Why? It was a response to whose are we? People who respond to the Christ that we came to know would live like this because this respects our bodies, respects human love, takes care of the vulnerable, puts Christ first, okay? This is all a whose are we response that ends up in the 21st century looking like a list of please don't do X, Y, and Z because we don't like it. The second model of the church is being what Christ promised when he, when he took leave of the apostles, which is, I will be with you to the end of the age. How will they know that Christ is still alive if they do not see him through our actions? And the third model is to be a glimpse of the kingdom of God on earth. It is here, but not yet full. What does it look like? Oh my gosh, it looks like people who both in their professional work and in their interactions with the people given them in their family relations, put the weakest and the other first, keep their promises, love them to the point where it's too good to be true, love them and respect them radically, their bodies, their persons, their emotions. So those are the models. Whose are we being Christ to the end of time and providing a glimpse in a community of what a group of people who are charged to, to provide a glimpse of the kingdom look like. I think that that's a real strength of the book is, is when you get into this about Catholic institutions and these models of community. You know, we're talking about like different responses that that people may often make uh, or, or provide when they're when these religious liberty challenges come up, especially like the the rule following or the bishop made me do it kind of thing. I mean, strikes me that um, many people in these institutions, I think, do generally see them as almost like secular service providers. Or there there is a real, Pope Benedict XVI often talks about the crisis of faith as being kind of like the key crisis in the church. Yes. I mean, so what you're calling for, it's not just a calm strategy, a communication strategy. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that this really requires a commitment at every level of the church and and all even our, our kind of more what you might call public facing institutions. There has to be a kind of renewal that runs all the way through a, a kind of yeah. faith renewal. I, does that seem right to you? I mean, this is this is sort of a like call to discipleship. Yes. Not just the sort of like, how do we communicate better? Uh, absolutely. You know, in, when I worked for USCCB, I was always straddling content and comms communications. Right. And I, as a, as a now professor for 22 years, uh, you know, you would think that I would say, oh, comms, you know, it's a lesser art. Uh, 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 uh. It's, <laughs> you can have the greatest teachings in the world. And if you can't communicate them to different people in different situations, then you're, you're, you're not doing your evangelistic job, right? So, so yes, the book is about comms, but it's like part First Amendment law, part uh, theology, ecclesiology, what is the church, moral mm -hmm. theology, what are our sex, marriage, and parenting teachings, and how are they overlap with social justice, and third, how to communicate this. That's the three parts of the book. And I do call on religious institutions to renew their understanding of themselves. And I, I think there's several factors 
at play here in their current struggle. You know, an old one is that we take care of everybody, right? That's that's the great thing about, you know, we don't say we only take care of you if you're already one of us and, and in the bark of salvation sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Our institutions show the face of Christ to everybody as he would. Nobody's out. Everybody's welcome. So that's the first thing is so, you know, that we've, we've, we've made this appeal to the world. And I think sometimes we fear that, oh, we have to make the world feel really comfy <laughs> when they come in the door and we can't be too Catholic. Ah, that'd be kind of scary. You know, they're going to scare them off. But in fact, we really have to convert ourselves again to the idea that it is our Catholicism, as I've described it, right? The, the whose are we, the face of Christ, the glimpse of the kingdom, that we have to trust that he's more appealing than any you know, logo, comm strategy, billboard, uh, press release that we could draft without his inspiration. And I mean, I, I don't we find that hard in our personal lives to say what God has on offer for me, for my kids, for my future, for my career is better than what I could dream up. <laughs> and the institution has to put itself in God's hands, too. Well, and especially when doing so often does not result in fruitfulness or success in earthly terms and often will bring um, suffering. Yep. Yep. And then you know you're doing it right in many cases, sadly. I think the other thing is that these institutions, there is a, this is a a legal point. It's boring, but it's important. The number of federal and state regulations governing our institutions I mean, there's some great statistic and I'm going to have to find it, but like you take all the regulations that were drafted in the United States from different government agencies, like from the year we were invented to like 1960 and put them all together in one book. And now we issue more than that every year. Okay. That may not be the exact figure, but it's a rough estimate, like thousands and thousands of thousands of pages. So our institutions are more answerable to secular accrediting bodies and government agencies and local laws. So they're spending so much time figuring out how to get licensed and stay alive and answering to so many secular masters that it leaves less time or a little less room to think about how they are first and foremost religious institutions. Another thing, and I'll say it, and I say it in the book, is some of them are not at all proud of our Catholic teaching on this, or they don't disagree. They just think it's a loser in the public realm or for their accrediting or governing or regulating masters. Hmm. And so they don't emphasize it. Uh, they think it's, it doesn't, like, as I try to say in the book, they think it, you know, it doesn't meld with our social justice policies, which of course it does, or that it's, Maybe it's not really good for people, which of course it is. So I think a lot of the institutions themselves are scared of it. I highlight um, uh, Georgetown Visitation, which is um, uh, a very, you know, elegant and advanced and one of the oldest, you know, girls high schools in the district, a uh, Catholic girls high schools in the country. And they, they basically came out and said uh, when they started celebrating same-sex weddings in their alumni magazine, well, we chose love over rules. You know, the church is wrong. We chose love. And so... A lot of them really do not understand the first thing about the origins or the contents of the church's teaching on this. So so I do say that as well, which seems like a harsh thing to say, but I do think it's reality that that's for some of the institutions, that's a reason. I mean, there there is a, a connection between um, communications and 
renewal of faith in the sense that so much of the way that we communicate our faith is just by personal witness. Yeah. And you have a, a, a whole chapter, an interesting chapter. You even note that it's a little bit different from the other ones, but it's about um, social influence theory, where you're yeah. using the social sciences to talk about the importance of, of personal witness. Um, you know, I think a lot of people intuit that personal witness is important. Uh, but what are some of the key findings that you bring in from the social sciences that kind of bolster that intuition? And then why is that so important for Catholic institutions as we're talking about renewing Catholic institutions? Yes. Let me start with actually, if I could flip that, because to put it, the chapter in context, let me put the chapter in context. First, I was shocked that in so many lawsuits, the state was demanding that the church hire people who not only don't like its teachings, but are publicly contradicting them with their life or statements and saying to the church, no, I'm sorry, you have to keep this person. <laughs> no, it doesn't make any difference in your institution, whether you have a person who dislikes or hates what you teach or publicly contradicts it. It's just an employment situation and we run employment law. So just, you know, shut up and, and hire them back. That shocked me. I didn't understand that. Second, this chapter on social influence ties together that part of being church, which is manifesting Christ to the world in, in all our public behavior with these employees interfacing with, with clients, students, uh, other employees. It, so it bridged the legal material. How do we convince a court that we really need to have the employees that manifest the mission? with the ecclesiological material, what is a religious institution? Well, it has to be a glimpse of the face of Christ, of the kingdom. So it is an odd chapter because it's full of empirical evidence that says, okay, if you even looked at the evidence in the world about what any institution would require in the way of employees in order to forward its mission, whether it's IBM or Apple or, or Chick-fil-A, you know, what any institution needs to forward its mission, you need people who actually agree with the mission and who communicate it. So I went through um, the social influence literature, which exists both respecting all institutions, corporations, uh, voluntary societies, et cetera. And then there's a branch of it that doesn't contradict it, but applies it to religious institutions. And what you find, and these are just some of the highlights, is that it really, really matters to an institution's ability to fulfill its mission that they have people who, in their personal relationships with other people, communicate you know, the positive values that the institution is seeking to promote that they role model these values in their behavior with other employees and with clients, students, patients, et cetera, that these are people who have confidence in the teaching. They're not like, well, I'm not really sure about it, but you know, I support the rules. You know, <laughs> They need to actually understand why the institution holds these values. Third, that these people actually, that especially the people who have status, and, you know, some people have status because they've got a title. Other people have status because, wow, this person has been an administrative assistant for 20 years. He or she knows 
all about the institution. Everyone trusts this person to have the institution's, you know, best interests at heart. So status comes in different ways. It's not just the people at the top of the ladder. It's people who are well respected in the institution, that those people especially uh, have imbibed its values. And also that you have a majority position. Yeah, you might be able to tolerate, you know, some dissenting opinions, but sort of everybody knows that the path this institution is traveling and the majority of people there understand, role model, believe in and forward its values. And I actually had the opportunity last summer to be an expert witness in a trial with a dissenting doctor against a uh, Catholic um, healthcare group um, who was actually trying to say that it didn't matter that a doctor could completely contradict the institution's position on a particular matter, but it didn't influence anything. Everyone knew that she wasn't with the program. And I brought in this social influence literature as something that I think really belongs in these kinds of lawsuits. And I, I hope that more religious institutions use it going forward after this book. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our time. And so um, just to kind of wrap up, first, I want to give Mary an opportunity if she has any a final question You're... i mean well i mean i think i think my final question we usually try to ask people like okay so what do i do what do i do what can i you know yeah. besides of course go out and you know buy helen's book and read it <laughs> <laughs> well and i think a good yeah connected to that because that was going to be something like mine too is like you know a, your final message you know to especially say somebody who works in a general counsel's office, like a diocesan attorney, I know you often speak to the diocesan attorneys or, you know, or, or an in-house counsel at one of these institutions that might face a religious liberty who, who's trying right. to deal with these. I mean, we're right now, you know, that there's all these regulations that are coming down from the Biden yes. administration that we're kind of in the thick of yep. responding to, you know, what is, what is the thing that you really want to, to say in terms of how you approach defend, I mean that's the that's what the book is all about. Yes. You know, what is it that what do we need to do when we respond to these things? Just in a in a quick kind of summary. Yes. Confidently support the teaching you're trying to uphold in in substantive ways. Don't just say I have a right to religious freedom. Because to the public, it sounds like I have a right to homophobia, hatred of women, <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, run roughshod over your beliefs because mine are more important. No. First, say the position that we are seeking to preserve in our institution is a beautiful, wholesome, helpful for individuals, for children, for communities, and especially for the vulnerable. Second, you know. You, the public, make an appeal to the public as well. We No lawsuit is ever just facing the judge and the other litigants. Every lawsuit is also facing the court of public opinion. Use it. Go out there and say, not just to the judge and the litigants, what I just said, do a public communications full court press. Third, express the teaching, and, and I wouldn't have spent three years writing the book if I didn't think I did a good job on it. The way I summarized our teachings on these neuralgic issues with a combination of natural truths, uh, nods, more than nods, strong affirmation of equality, freedom, happiness as the end result of our teachings, 
supported also by religion, not just by natural law and empirical, I think is useful. Okay, use it, you know, it's there and it's it's empirically supported. And then, you know, make your religious freedom case using the law available to us, the autonomy of church institutions, the ministerial exemption, et cetera, by relying on these models of what these institutions are. They are ecclesial, they are church institutions and using the social influence literature to say our employees matter, not just a lot, but they're dispositive to our ability. So I, you know, just whether we win or lose these cases and we do win a bunch of them. Sometimes we win them with really thin arguments that are not putting us in good stead in the public's opinion of our sexual expression teachings. They just say, oh, well, you won one. So now you get to do your hateful thing, you know, under the name of religious freedom. I just think we have to marry our religious freedom arguments with our arguments about the beauty of our sexual expression teachings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that is, I think that what you're saying explains why a lot of people on this side arguing these, making these arguments often feel like even when we win at the Supreme Court every June, we get favorable rulings and still feel like we're losing. Yes. And you kind of wonder like, why? Mm-hmm. Why does it seem like we why? win everything, but then we also feel like we're under siege? Mm-hmm. Well, I think yes. this is why, because we we often can make good legal arguments. Yes. But if we don't, if we're not also making a good pitch or putting our best foot forward with the general public, with the broader culture, then what, then winning and at the Supreme Court doesn't really matter that much. Well, and it's you know? forgetting to be church first. It's forgetting to be outwardly focused. In other words, yes. it's not about what is good for me and my rights. It's about, hey, what is good for for others? I or, like that. Like also you, still. right? What is for you? Not <laughs> yeah. me. It's not about That's me. Right. It's about you. I'm doing this for you and, and, and meaning it. And I do think even if we lost some of these, I would have the same feeling that I would have when for 10 years I ran around the country and talked about pro-life for the bishops conference, I know I moved some minds. I know I made people think, well, at least they're confident and positive and they have an argument and it's rational and it's beautiful, even if I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) They're, They're still winning even if we lose some of these cases. Well, thank you so much. I think this has been a great conversation. I hope I love the book. I hope that it's widely read. Um, I think it's I think it's a helpful contribution. So um, again, thank you for it. what you've done. Thank you yeah. so much. And thanks to both of you for some really excellent questions. Thank you, Helen. We've been speaking with Helen Alvarez about her book, Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution, A Catholic Guide. It's hot off the press, published just this year by Catholic University of America Press. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.